Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly. I work at the American Enterprise Institute and Dalbo Rohach, also a senior fellow with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, we are thrilled to have joining us Dr. Christoph Heusken, who is the chairman of the Munich Security Conference and who previously served as German ambassador to the United Nations and as former Chancellor Angela Merkel's um, foreign and security policy advisor. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Dr. Heusken, it's great to have you with us. And maybe we can start on a broad level with the German Zeitenwende. Here on this podcast, just like everywhere else in the transatlantic space, we've been debating it constantly ever since Chancellor Scholz's um, speech three days after the full-scale invasion. And at the last Munich Security Conference, this was obviously also a major topic. And Germany has been getting a lot of heat, um, especially is getting it here in Washington for not following up on the implementations uh, as much as particularly Washington would like. Um, and yet it's it's called Zeitenwende for a reason. And what usually Germans are telling us is that Zeitenwende takes time. So we would like to hear your take on one year plus um, into the short speech. Where do you think things lie right now? Where is Germany in its Zeitenwende? First of all, let me thank you for having the opportunity to join you in this um, podcast. It's really a pleasure to discuss with you. And um, yes, um, let's discuss Zeitenwende. The first thing is that um, I have the impression gradually that Zeitenwende, the expression as such, gradually entering the English language. You know, we are not yet where kindergarten is, but to talk seriously, the glass is half full and half empty. Let me talk about the half full first. There is a radical change in the perception of Russia in Germany. There is a change in, in many aspects of German foreign policy. We are delivering for the first time or the second time, first time in a serious way, Germany is delivering weapons into a conflict area. It was always a, a rule in Germany that um, with regard to arms exports, we had a very restrictive policy and the general rule was not to send German arms into a conflict where they would be used and now to have German weapons, in particular the Leopard uh, tank um, being used in a war between Ukraine and Russia. This is something that is um, for many Germans still hard to digest and it's a change in policy. Also, on another level, energy. We have 180 degrees change our energy policy. Now, um, for years and decades, it was always delivery of energy from east, um, from the east, from from Russia, was uh, something that was taken for granted. It was seen for many years also as part of Ostpolitik, as part of 
getting to overcome um, the cleavages in, in Europe, to overcome the Iron Curtain and to do trade and uh, have through trade get uh, change in policy. That was a constant and that led to a part at least also to, to German reunification. Now, to have um, a total ban on imports, to have tough sanctions against Russia is something that has um, total change in policy. Also, our attitude towards um, Russia, there were lots of skeptics in, in Germany and lots of people since uh, at the latest 2014 who said, well, we have to change tack. But We had a large part of the population, a bit cross-party, elderly people who said, well, first, remember, Germany is responsible for 20 million debt of, on the territory that once was the Soviet Union. It was only thanks to um, Russia, to um, President Gorbachev, that German reunification was possible. So there is also... Um, for many years, there was this feeling of guilt, the feeling of gratitude towards Russia that led to a Russia policy that um, was uh, criticized for many years as too lenient. And all this has changed, but it takes, as um, you said, um, I think, Julia, you said this a bit earlier, it, it takes some time to have this really enter into the or to exchange the DNA of many politicians uh, uh, who said we have to work with Russia, we have to see that Russia is a partner, we have to negotiate with Russia, and for them to understand that this is no longer possible. This uh, this takes time. We at the Munich Security Conference see this as a challenge, and therefore what we are doing now in Germany is what we call Zeitenwende on Tour. We go with our Munich Security Conference through all German states, uh, to all major cities, do town halls with local media to try to talk to normal people. We go into high schools, universities to tell them about what uh, what Zeitenwende means, that, um, no, we can forget about working this stage cooperatively with Russia. We have to continue to send arms to Ukraine because if we don't do that, Russia will close in on, on your and all this. So the glasses um, half full, as I described, is half empty because to change this attitude, to really uh, put enough money into the defense budget, to have our defense system um, produce weapons, ammunition at the speed that is needed right now. This all this all takes time. We are now, I think, behind the U.S., the second largest donor of um, weapons to Ukraine. But for my taste, it took too long until the decision was taken to send all the different um, you know, heavy weapons, to send the Leopard tank. But in the end, uh, we, we did. So... This is, um, I could go on, but this is, um, I think, the gist of, of the challenge that we have um, in front of us. But as I said, the glass is um, at least half full. If I can just follow up on that quickly, when you when you go around the country and talk to people about Zeitenwende and what needs to be done, I wonder what, what sort of reactions you are getting, because clearly in some domains, the adjustment, the change has been easier than in others. I mean, in energy policy, for example, the sort of shift away from Russian sources within the scope of months, I think has been a sort of extraordinary change, which I suppose most Germans are you know, quite comfortable with and, and accepting of. But putting a greater emphasis on hard power, on military spending, on sort of rearming Germany, on you know, bringing the defense industrial complex to a shape 
that would be needed in a situation in which Europe really needs to needs to sort of do more might be much harder culturally. So so what what are the sort of arguments you encounter in these in these conversations and how do you how do you respond to them? May I add a quick footnote? That that was a question I wondered about. Are there differences by region that are obvious? I mean, you guys have been at it for a couple months now. No, thank you for this question. Um, on energy, yes, Dalibor, we didn't have this um, shortage of energy that was expected, but we do have an increase in price. When you look at you know where you live in the US, when you look at the gas price there, um, energy, heat price, you probably consider it high, but it's nothing compared to Germany So uh, and some of the European countries. So there is an increase in energy price, which hurts, but it is much less than what some people thought would happen. Giselle, I'm very grateful for your question because it is totally different. To start with um, our last Zeiten vendor on tour, we went to a city which you know in the US, this is uh, Wittenberg, which is uh, where Martin Luther you know, put his thesis there on the on the door where I was last last week looking at the door. I had to find out that it burned down, so the the door is not the original one, but it's, the thesis are still there. So Wittenberg is in the you know is in in the middle of uh, eastern part of Germany, and one would expect that this part of Germany, which was occupied by um, the Soviets um, until reunification, would be the one who would be very strong in supporting Ukraine. It's quite the opposite. It's in the west of Germany where um, people understand. It's in the east where there, um, where we have the strongest opposition. This has many reasons. One reason is that people who live in, in that region and who have stayed in this region, actually it's to a certain degree depopulated because many after the fall of the Iron Curtain went to the west of the country. Those who are live there, many see themselves of, as losers of globalization. They see after the fall of the Soviet Union when all the uh, the big um, you know, state companies went bankrupt, many people lost their jobs and they see themselves as actually losers of um, uh, reunification. Also, in some areas, they remember that the tough people, that uh, the people that um, they confronted every day was the East German communists, while it was the Russians with uh, Gorbachev who then finished the East German regime. So to some of them, the Russians are even see, being seen as um, having brought something positive to them in the, in the end. So in this debate, we had a lot about well, you you guys bringing um, you know bringing NATO uh, towards the east, uh, you are to blame. A lot of criticism on the on U.S. behavior. The U.S. in East Germany is not that popular in some part of the population because uh, even 30 years after uh, reunification, the indoctrination through the communist um, system in East Germany still. Um, is, is somehow still ingrained there. So you, you, you also have kind of a, um, equidistant to Russia and the US. And we have a lot of um, refugees that came into this uh, area which were not um, welcomed. And uh, so you have um, a lot of um, convincing, convincing to do. There are the big uh, refineries where Russian oil came from, also a Russian gas landed in eastern 
uh, Germany jobs got lost or are being lost. So there is some skepticism. Then in the rest of Germany, basically the support was very strong at the beginning. It remained strong, uh, but still there I see the obligation of um, reminding people again and again that the aggression of Russia uh, continues. Um, we cannot go back to the old normal. We have to continue to support Ukraine financially. We have to continue to welcome Ukrainians, which works well. You know, even alone in, in Berlin, we have about 100,000 Ukrainians who, who live here and have been accepted into families. So this works well, but still one has to remind people. And um, in particular, with regard to the, to the budget, I see this is uh, the biggest challenge also for Chancellor Scholz, because um, uh, we definitely need more for defense. We have a special fund of 100 billion. But that will be soon gone with all the weaponry where we have to catch up with what we to, to catch up what we, we we haven't done in the past, like a new fighter plane that carries tactical nuclear weapons. All this we need to have a structural change in our annual budget. We have to go from 1.5 to. 2.0, and this is a lot of money. We have a new defense minister, Minister Pistorius, who is a dean from the outside, very active, accepted by the armed forces. He loves the job. He is number one on the uh, list of most popular politicians. But um, even he will... And a big improvement on his predecessor, shall we say? <laughs> yes, you see, um, <laughs> everything is relative. But no, the guy also... I've, I've met many um, defense ministers in my life. He is um, until now really on the top of the list, but even he will have problems in the present uh, budget negotiation to get the 10 billion extra that he asked for because um, people will say, well, we have to cover the social costs um, due to inflation and uh, energy price. We have to invest more in green energy and um, so there will be a lot of lot of pressure. So there is some hesitation. It needs leadership. Scholz gave this fantastic speech, but sometimes one has the impression from the outside that he is a bit hesitant in following through, which has to do with his own party. The Social Democratic Party is the peace party. Basically, the Greens who used to be that are now much more pragmatic and they are the, the party that is very forceful in supporting Ukraine. So it's the classic social democrats who um, have this, um, uh, as we say in German, had lots of Russland Vorsteher people who understand Russia, how we interpret them within them. And so Scholz has to be careful not to offend them too much. And so sometimes um, the impression is he could continue to provide this leadership which he provided um, uh, in his famous Zeitenwende speech in, in Bundestag. Back to you. We can stay within Europe for a bit. First of all, I need to, I, I'm still reeling from the shock for those of us who know German strategic culture well. The fact that the most popular politician is the German defense minister is unprecedented. <laughs> um, so um, so it sounds uh, it sounds promising. The If we are to zoom out a little bit, we've followed uh, to the extent that we can from Washington, the changing European security architecture. And we've seen the hiccups um, that are due to personality politics, but also due to um, the crisis between the French and the German, Franco-German um, bilateral relationship, the 
locomotive of European um, affairs, um, at least perceived until recently. And we also observe a shift um, towards the East, which would make then the German-Polish relationship um, one of the most, if not the most important um, relationship, bilateral relationship in uh, in Europe. And that, of course, has its own hiccups too. We hear that while politically there are a lot of issues, including requests for um, reparations um, on the technical and sort of um, planning level, whether that's energy or military, things are going um, much better. Um, there was a recent article to that um, extent in um, the Financial Times. So if you are to um, look at this kind of shift or reshuffling of European affairs broadly, how how do you see this relationship developing? Um, is it that due to the war, due to also the future of how um, this region will develop Ukraine after the war, um, possible discussions, we've seen that including in Germany of um, EU membership for Ukraine. Do you perceive the shift um, going eastward and the Franco-German relationship um, fading uh, to the benefit of the Franco-Polish relationship? How do you see these things? Sorry, did you mean the, the Franco-Polish relationship? Oh, sorry, the, the Franco-German versus the German-Polish, yes. Yes, I think these are all very good, good um, observations. First, um, German-French relations. Um, when you go back into history, between um, 1870 and 1945, there have been three wars. And uh, what um, has been really a miracle in Europe that um, after 1945 until today, this has been the longest period of peace in what the area which the region which is today the European Union. This has to do with the German-French friendship and the readiness to integrate the economy politics into the European Union, that now the, the fights that we have between each other um, are not fought on the battlefield, but um, at the European Court of Justice in, in Luxembourg. And um, this is really a tremendous success that uh, we have in, 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 in Europe. But you know, this European integration process, the whole European machine, um, when you look to the past, has only worked if Germany and France were together from uh, you know, Adenauer and de Gaulle to Helmut Kohl and uh, Mitterrand. And my boss, um, Angela Merkel, always took pain in uh, working very hard with the four presidents she um, worked with. She was in her office from, Gis from uh, um, Jacques Chirac to um, Sarkozy to Hollande and Macron. It was not always easy, different characters, but this was in the... Um, she was told by Helmut Kohl from the very beginning that this is key. And uh, so it always uh, worked well. There is right now, um, I'm no longer in the inner circle, but looking at the outside, my impression is a bit as you described it, and that is that the German-French relations are there. Um, they have their summits, they talk to each other, but it's not, um, it doesn't have the depth, um, the warmth, uh, the intensity as it used to have. And this is something that is um, a bit worrying, in particular, when you look at the French situation, where 
uh, Macron has uh, basically killed the political center, and uh, one wonders, um, and one is um, one wonders a lot, and is even concerned about who could be a potential successor to to Macron. We don't want to look that far, but um, your observation is right, and this is something that one needs also from the outside to always um, push the governments to to work together, Germany and France. The idea would be um, this: what we call the Weimar Triangle. Um, that is a format where you have Germany, France, and um, Poland together. We were fortunate to have them um, for the first time in a long time um, meet on the margins of the Munich Security Conference. So we had um, uh, the three parties, president, prime ministers uh, together, but I couldn't get them to um, demonstrate that on stage because um, probably they were afraid of, of questions that may be embarrassing or would bring out the difference that there are. So there are some differences. The German-Polish relationship, um, let me start with the positive one. You know, I remember after reunification, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, there were lots of jokes in Germany about the Poles. And this has totally ceased when you look at um, the relationship in the um, between the populations. It's, it's very good, has become very natural. The hero of my 10-year-old son is a Polish soccer striker, Robert Lewandowski, who won the Champions League with Bayern Munich and uh, scored all records. So, um, and I live in the Berlin area for, you know, people in, in the office here to go over the weekend to Poland and the other way around is very natural. This is very important. But there is now, of course, in Poland, the PiS government with Mr. Kaczynski, the strongman who actually campaigns with anti-German uh, sentiments with, um, you, you mentioned about the reparation. And this is um, not very, um, this is a bit alarming that you try to win elections with anti-German propaganda. The opposition Position, um, where still the former Prime Minister Tusk is um, in the lead there, this is much more normal, but um, and, and there is a good relationship. Tusk and, and Merkel were very good friends, and um, there is no, uh, the mayor of, of Warsaw has been a guest at the Munich Security Conference um, who almost won the last presidential election. So this is more normal, but we have to work at this. We have to um, see to it that we that we um, work together. On the main question, where does European Union shift? You know, European Union will never decide something where Germany and France are totally at odds, but German-French unity doesn't suffice today to get an agreement on other issues or on most of the issues. You do need now more the countries, the Eastern countries, although there you have a lot of, you have a lot of differences and we must uh, take into consideration the big challenge that Hungary poses, not only to, to Germany and the EU, but also to the East European countries. Uh, they used to be these so-called Visegrad countries, Slovakia, Poland, Czech Republic and Hungary that were very close together and were kind of a powerhouse in the European they have totally broken apart over Ukraine. So they are not as, as coherent as they were before. But you know, one has to admit with the professionalization of the governments of the Baltic countries, Eastern countries are a stronger voice in the European Union that have been in the past. 
to get to agreements in the European Union is now more cumbersome. You have some still a bit pro-Russian or let's say not um, a bit neutral countries in the south from you know, Greece to, to certain degrees, Cyprus, Malta. Italy, where everybody expected them to be close to Hungary, so far on foreign policy has um, proven um, all uh, skeptics wrong and uh, Meloni is actually doing a good job. Spain, by the way, um, I'm surprised how tough the, you know, the Socialist Party is. It has to do with the history that Soviet Union supported Franco and not the, um, the revolution at the time. So the Socialists in Spain are were actually the first one to offer their leopard tank. So it is, you know, a bit more, um, it is cannot clearly divide East, West, um, North, South in the European Union. It's more complicated than that. But overall, with regard to sanctions, with regard to support, you know, we pay now out of the European peace facility, we pay now billions to buy ammunition for the Ukrainians. So it's, we are on a good track. We have our president of the European Commission, von der Leyen, who has been very outspoken, very strong on, on Ukraine, on the support for Ukraine. So overall, uh, I think we are we are not in a bad place, but of course, one always expects more. Ambassador, your, your account of the differences between European countries, I think, would make a really good pitch for my most recent book, Governing the EU in an Age of Division, which addresses specifically this question of Europe's underlying heterogeneity and disagreements as a sort of basic condition of European life. But since you spent a lot of time talking about Poland, let me widen the aperture a little bit. So, so Józef Piłsudski, the interwar leader of Poland, was famous for saying that there can never be an independent Poland without an independent Ukraine. What this current war that Russia is waging against Ukraine raises as a question is, you know, what kind of security settlement there will be once the war is over for Ukraine going forward that would prevent Russians from reinvading or to prevent future threats to to Ukraine's independence and territorial integrity and uh, I mean the most obvious answer to that question is NATO membership so so would you like to see Ukraine in NATO and if not what are the other alternatives that one could sort of consider to make sure that Ukraine will be safe once once the war is over yes i think this is um, of course a very important uh, question um, I was advisor to the Chancellor back in 2008 um, when Chancellor Merkel, together with Sarkozy and others, um, vetoed um, Ukrainian membership in NATO. I still um, hold that this decision at the time was the right one because Ukraine in 2008 um, was a totally different country from what it is today. It was a uh, country totally divided. Um, when the chancellor to prepare um, the um, uh, summit went to Kiev, president at the time, uh, Yushchenko, did everything to prevent that the chancellor saw his uh, most important rival, his own prime minister, Yulia Timoshenko. They were at odds. The polls in the country were rather negative with regard to NATO membership and uh, to have Ukraine enter NATO at that stage with um, the Russian fleet then actually stationed in Sevastopol on the territory of, of Ukraine, of a NATO country. We thought that was a, a bad idea. And um, I think still also when you talk to members of the Bush administration who fought for this then at the summit, you now read with Bill Burns, you hear from others that most of them were also against it. It was more 
um, so Cheney who was in favor of this. But um, what was true then is not necessarily true today. We um, and the Chancellor told Putin at the time that um, we had vetoed um, Georgian and Ukrainian membership at NATO. There was uh, it was not in the books that this would change. There is a firm position um, on this, but. Um, Putin nevertheless used the argument of imminent kind of NATO membership in his uh, propaganda, why he said he needed to invade Ukraine, etc. So this has changed um, then that he did invade, although he was told that um, Ukraine would not become NATO. Also, and this coming closer to your argument, we negotiated at the time in the so-called Normandy format, the Minsk agreements. The Minsk agreements, when you look at it, um, gave the possibility for a peaceful resolution of the conflict after the invasion of um, of um, uh, Ukraine by Russia in 2014 and 15. But with the 20th, um, uh, 22nd of February 2015, has uh, Putin has um, totally changed um, uh, changed the game. And what held true in 2008, what I would say true until even 2015 and beyond, no longer does hold true because there is not even the lowest degree of trust in Russia that Russia may um, you know, finally adhere to an agreement. Nobody believes this anymore. After they have you know, dealt this death blow to Minsk, the death blow to the Budapest Memorandum, and therefore if Ukraine enters some kind of... Um, ceasefire peace agreement with Russia, they will rightfully ask for, and we will probably push them to do that because we want the end of this suffering, the end of, you know, um, spending so much money. Um, Ukraine rightly asked for guarantees. Um, I'm personally now in favor of NATO membership because this is strongest support they can get, the strongest message also to Vladimir Putin or his successor that if he does it again, he will have to deal directly with NATO, with the, with the U.S. My feeling, though, is after talking to officials in Washington, when I listen a bit what also here um, from the chancellor's office is reflected, this, is, uh, this will not, at this stage, I believe, this will not get unanimous support in NATO. So the second best solution then is to put um, Ukraine full of weapons, to put um, as many weapons um, in the country um, as is possible to make it very clear to Putin that if he tries again or his successor, if he tries again, there will be a response that will basically you know, destroy Russia. It is something like the, you know, you remember the NATO double track. You no, know, you're not, none of you is old enough then. Yes, we're all old enough to remember that. <laughs> or at least, at least I am, okay? I won't speak for the others. It's a NATO double track decision where we said very, Helmut Schmidt was at the time, um, the German chancellor who said very clear, asked by, um, asked the Americans uh, then to, um, be ready to to station Pershing two um, missiles on German territory um, uh, as a countermeasure to their um, SS twenty, 
And uh, we won this deal and um, Russia withdrew at the time. And this was the beginning of the end of Russia, I think. So my short response to your to your short question, I would prefer NATO membership. I don't think that we get everybody behind that. And so in the end, we will have to put Ukraine full of weapons with a clear message to Putin and his successor. This will be, um, you know, deadly for your country if you try it again. Well, uh, um, I know we're running short of time. Uh, and I will refrain from uh, pimping my own book. But um, first of all, I, I commend you for identifying the fact that Russia's position in Crimea is a real crippler to the prospect of integrating Ukraine into Western security architecture and particularly into NATO. But I, I, I wanted to try to pull the whole conversation together uh, and to test a proposition with you. And that is that what we're seeing now is a real sort of historic shift in the um, orientation, the geographical orientation of European security matters. Uh, as you rightly pointed out, you know, for, gosh, four centuries, the, the cockpit of European warfare was space from the Belgian lowlands through the North German plain and in North Europe. And now it's really uh, shifted to what we call the Eastern Front, the sort of the line of the Dnipro, if you will. And it runs more north-south than directly east-west. I think that accounts in part for not only the Franco-German relationship is less central to those questions, and not only the uh, German-Polish relationship, but the future German-Ukrainian relationship and relationship with Central European countries becomes more critical to the European uh, leg, if you will, of the transatlantic system. Do you think there's any logic to that? And if so, how would you parse German thinking about that? In some ways, that's a more traditional German orientation, or as traditional as any other. But, uh, you know, that's where that's where the contest is. And it seems to me we have to respond to that strategic reality in some durable and long-lasting way. I know that's kind of bloviating, but, uh, or, you know, at, at 60,000 feet. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, let's, uh, I would go to 100,000 feet. And um, I, would, <laughs> okay. I would say that okay. this... Get the high ground. Yeah, no, this, um, first of all, this... This German, French, um, whatever happens in France, whatever, I think that the European Union is there to stay. I think that this uh, relation is so solid that we'll not return to where we were, as I said, between 1871 and 1945. Number two, what happens on the Eastern Front, so to speak, is right now in the limelight. But um, I believe from 100,000 feet, what is happening right now is the end of a, a independent, strong Russia. I don't think that Russia can sustain what they're doing for a long time. Their economy goes down the drain. We'll have fossil fuel importance will go down. Um, their dem demographics is, is a nightmare. And they'll become, as your countrymen, um, for the Americans among you, John McCain has said, they'll become China's gas station. China's gas station. So in the, in the 100,000 feet, it's more... Europe, it's um, the US against China. But I think that this competition and this now I come to my point will be played out outside Europe. And this will be played out in Africa, Asia and Latin America. This is the battleground of the future. 
And this is where we have to get ready to. And we have to, um, I think Europe and the US have to work together on this. We had at the Munich Security Conference, we had, um, um, you know, I, I had representatives from the so-called Global South, which I don't want to call Global South because you cannot, you know, they're all very different. But the Vice President of Colombia, Prime Minister of Namibia, Foreign Minister of Philippines, Foreign Minister of Brazil, for them... Ukraine comes number five or six on their list. They have totally different uh, concerns and uh, they look at, they, they tell us that these are double standards. You know, you are now insisting on supporting Ukraine. Where were you when the US was violating international law in 2003 in Iraq? And so you always concentrate on your problems. You have to look at our problems and um, they become much more self-confident and uh, China has an advantage there because they have invested heavily with their belt and road they um, uh, look strategically at the ports they look at the resources of these countries and uh, we are behind we are not paying enough attention to to this we don't uh, act together we don't coordinate our instruments and this is the biggest challenge we have this is where europe and and us can work together but this is where i see the challenge that we provide a better alternative to these countries and the chinese do um, and in doing this, we have to be much more sensitive to their challenges than we used to used to be. So that's, for me, the 100,000 feet issue. At some stage, we'll look back, I hope at least at this confrontation, as the last gasp of a country that, um, of a neo-colonialistic, the last colonialistic power that is Russia and that is now um, pushed back into, into its place. So maybe I'm too optimistic with regard to Russia, but I see really the challenge in what I said. From your lips. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly my my thinking from your lips to God's ears. And um, if that happens, we are optimistic too. Then we have a good excuse to um, finish up the Eastern Front podcast and focus on a different area. Thank you so much, Christoph Heusken, for joining us. We hope that you will join us again, um, maybe to talk about broader things at some point, if we're moving away from the Eastern Front at some point. Uh, from we are all available to moderate a panel at the conference. No, we should we should host it. We should run the podcast from Munich next year. That would be the. Uh... We'll just grab people as they walk by. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm listen. Thank you very much for for this opportunity. Um, wonderful discussion and uh, great. Um, I have to tell um, Dalibor that you are a bit at a disadvantage because we put a lot of emphasis on having more women at the Munich Security Conference. Um, <laughs> but uh, Giselle has done her share. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, no, let's stay in touch. And uh, also with media-wise, you know, we are we are ready also then when it comes closer to Munich Security Conference to see what, what can be done that maybe, um, you know, can do a podcast or, or something. No, we'd love to partner with you. And, um, you know, I've seen Julia in another, um, another incarnation there uh, some time ago. And um, again, thank you very much for the invitation. It was a I found a very interesting conversation and very relevant questions, if I may say so. So all the best to you. Certainly also um, from us, very interesting. And we hope um, for our listeners as well. From me, Julia Joja, and my friend. Giselle Donnelly and... Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod 
in one word, and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.